All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I always have to look at the time to see what time it is. It's still morning here, so it's great to see you here today. I just got back last night. Um, we were at a conference over in Bethel, Cal- uh, in Redding, California, um, which was fantastic. It was great. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, maybe today, maybe a little bit later. I don't know. Um, but we're doing a series around here. If you want to get your Bible out, if you would, please. A series that we're calling Life in the Balance. And what we're doing is that we're going through the book of Romans, kind of chapter by chapter, because when you think about it, for the past 2,000 years, God has used the book of Romans. I'm really feeling lopsided, just so you know. There, it's like everybody's on this side of the church today. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not sure why that quite is, but just so, if I start leaning this direction, just, just so you know, I'm not ignoring you over there. It's just I'm feeling, yeah, I don't know that, what that is. Goats and sheep, what is it? I'm not sure. All right. Uh, yes, exactly. Anyway, back to the book of Romans. I thought we dealt with self-righteousness last week, but... John Calvin said this about the book of Romans. He said, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open to help him understand the entire Bible. And it's just so true. The book of Romans is the... Um, handbook for Christianity. Of all the books in the Bible, this is the one that has every major theological issue right in this book, which is the reason why some people feel like it's so complicated. And if you read it in any of the more complicated um, Bible translations, it can get really bogged down very quickly because it uses these big old words um, that are really theological doctrine that's in, in this book. And and so, but, but it is the handbook for Christianity, which is why it is so important for us to get to know it. And it has literally changed history. There's a, a great um, Swiss Bible commentator, and he, he said it this way. He said, every great revival in history that has ever started can somehow be related to this book. And so my prayer is as, as we go through this series, my prayer is that for you and for me, just as God has used this book time and time and time again for generation after generation, to shift people out of the rest, to shift people who are frustrated, to shift people who have those ho-hums. I don't know if anybody ever used those words, but I, I always tell my, my wife, I always try to figure out what my emotional state is, and one of my emotional states is I just have the ho-hums. You know what I'm talking about? You just don't feel like you want to do anything? Well, I, I, I'm praying that God will use this, even this book to shift you out of those ho-hums and even the hurting places of your life and really start a revival in your heart just as he's done time and time again, generation after generation. So I want to encourage you again to be reading the book of Romans on your own. Um, And we'll talk about it each week. Like I said, we're going to take a chapter a week leading into Easter, and then we'll do our Easter services, and then we'll come back to it and finish up the book of Romans after Easter. So if you have your Bible, go to Romans chapter 3, and it's in the New Testament. So go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and then we hit the book of Romans. And so um, this morning, this afternoon, we're going to be talking about the um, chapter 3. And again, let me kind of orient you in in case you've never um, read the book of Romans or if you haven't been in the last couple weeks, because how Paul is writing this first part of the book of Romans is that he's creating a courtroom scene, which is the reason why I have this enormous counter up here. Um, It has nothing to do with my ego or anything like that. But this is, I want to give you a visual because this is, this is how Paul's writing. He's creating this, this courtroom scene. And the case that's before the courts is mankind's innocence or guilt before God. And so the charge is that mankind has deliberately rejected God. Now, Paul, he's the prosecuting attorney here. 
And he's the one who's really pushing this forward and bringing the evidence here of mankind's guilt. And the accused in this court case is all of humanity. That's you and me. We're the ones that are on trial here. And so here in the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul as a prosecuting attorney, he is making the case that every single person in the world, so every one of us, there's nobody outside of this, that we all have the evidence of doing something wrong. We've all done something wrong, and as a result, we will be judged. And so here at the beginning part of Romans chapter 3, if you again think about this courtroom scene, Paul's beginning to make his closing remarks as the prosecuting attorney. He presented all the evidence that he needed to, and now he's beginning to make his closing statements here. And the first thing that he does is that he anticipates the questions that are in the minds of the jurors. And what he does is that he has, he, he starts at the beginning part of Romans chapter 3, he starts bringing these questions forward, and, and so these questions that he, they sees that these jurors might have. In other words, what about our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness? Does our unfaithfulness negate God's faithfulness? Our unfaithfulness, did I say it right? Our unfaithfulness negate God's faithfulness. Or what about our unrighteousness? And God's righteousness, and he does kind of a weird one here, because does our sin actually help God look better? (laughs) In other words, should we sin more so that God can even look bigger and more glorified? And, And so he brings, he anticipates these questions and he brings them out. And the second thing he does in the closing remark is that he then answers these questions that he knows are in the minds of the jurors. And Apostle Paul, he does this in the beginning part of this chapter by bringing in supportive evidence through testimonies and Old Testament quotes. And, and he also does this by bringing these arguments that he, that he envisions the jurors have, and he brings them to their really illogical conclusion. Here's one of them, verse 5. He says, but, but some say our breaking faith with God is good. Our sins serve a good purpose. For people will notice how good God is when they see how bad we are. Is it fair then for him to punish us when our sins are helping him? (laughs) And so he just takes these questions, he takes these, these, these arguments that people have, and he turns them upside down, and he brings them then to their illogical conclusion. And then the third thing that Paul does in his closing remarks is that he summarizes his conclusion. Again, if you've ever been in a courtroom situation, if any of you are attorneys or, if you, or maybe you had to sit through a trial, maybe you were on a jury um, of one, um, he's just following the outline that uh, a lawyer would do. After the evidence is done, now he's just making his, his conclusions here. And this is what he says in verse 9. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We are already made. We already made the ch- the charge that all Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. And all have turned away. They've all to- they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even. One. So he's describing them that all of humanity, every single one of us, whether you know it or not, whether you want to or not, that one day you are going to stand before God and have to give account for your life. And in that moment, you're going to have no defense. You're not going to be able to say, well, well God, I'm innocent. You're not going to be able to say, well, I, I didn't know God. 
You're not going to be able to say, well, well, God, I was a good person. I mean, at least I'm better than Jan Willoughby, you know. At least I'm better than that. You're not going to be able to say that. You're not going to be able to compare yourself to anybody else. You're not going to be able to say, well, I went to church, God. I did all these good things, and I avoided this stuff. None of that's going to be able to defend you because Paul says there's no one righteous, not even one. That word righteous, and you'll see it all through the book of Romans, that word righteous means to be in right standing with God. So every time you see righteous, think one who is in right standing with God. And Paul says, there's no one. None of us are in right standing with God. In and of ourselves, it's impossible for you to be in right standing with God because the only one that can be in right standing with God has to be perfect because God is perfect. And because all of us, the evidence has been clear. Paul's already presented the evidence of your godlessness and your wickedness and your self-righteousness. He's already made that evidence that then you cannot be, you cannot stand in and of yourself in the presence of God. And so because of that, the gavel comes down and the verdict of guilty is declared. Guilty on all accounts of godlessness. Guilty on all accounts of wickedness. Guilty. On all accounts of self-righteousness, which then brings us to verse 21, and look at these two verbs, these two words right at the beginning, but now. Two very simple words, but it begins to transition everything, and, and they're extraordinary of significance, because what happens here is Paul makes this huge shift, because what he does is he takes off his prosecuting hat, and now he puts on his defense attorney hat. And so you need to watch this courtroom because he's changing roles. And right here he begins to change the roles and he begins to give an explanation of what God did for us. In spite of all that he brought in the case that we are guilty, he now takes on the defense attorney hat and says, let's look at what God has done for us. And in doing this, he actually gives us a technical description then of the gospel. Finish verse 21. It says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, Paul's talking that what God has done for us, it's unearned. You can't get to heaven by being a really good person. You can't get to heaven by just earning it, working on it. You can't get to heaven by keeping all the Ten Commandments. In other words, you're not saved. You're not put in a right standing with God by how good of a person you are. Just because you go to church doesn't get you into heaven. No, salvation doesn't happen through any sort of religious law or lists of morals. The problem here, and he brings this up, the problem is that we all have this tendency to want to make it about us. We have this tendency to try to do things or to earn our way to God. And so then we have this thing with God. I'm, I'm trying to get God to love me. I'm trying to get, get beyond God's good side here. And so now I start creating these lists of do's and don'ts so that I can make sure I'm on good, God's good side here because, boy, I sure want to get to heaven. Uh, the, other, the alternative is just not good, and so I want to make sure I get to, heaven, get to heaven. But there is only one way for you to get to heaven. Look at verse 22. It says, this righteousness, again, remember that word righteous, means to be in right standing with God. So this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If you're taking notes, underline the words, faith in Jesus Christ. 
Because when you boil it down, I think you can sum up the entire Christian life in one word. And that word is faith. All the religions of the world will tell you things you need to do. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not about doing. It's about putting your faith in to believe, to accept, to have faith, to adhere to, to hold on to. And so what God has done for us, we can only step into it. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, which means there's only one condition for us to get in on what God has done for us. And that condition is you have to believe. That's what he says here. He says, the righteous the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who what? Believe. That's what he's saying. But notice it only says believe. It doesn't say believe and work really hard. It doesn't say believe and be morally upright. It doesn't say believe and make sure you go to church every single Sunday of your life. If you miss one, you're gone. That's it. That's it. It doesn't, you see what I'm saying? All it says is Believe this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who to all who believe. Think about it this way. And so you want to get to the twentieth um, floor of a building. And so you get in the elevator and you press the button and you go up three floors. But then you get off the elevator, and then you go to the stairwell and you walk up three flights of stairs. Then you get back on the elevator. You go up three three floors on the elevator. But then you get off the elevator and you walk up three flights of stairs. And then you get back on the elevator, and you go up three floors, and then you get off. Is that just ridiculous? Does anybody do that if you're trying to go up in a building? No, we don't, we don't do that, right? But we do do this a lot of times when it comes to God. We begin to put our trust in him. I put my faith in him, but then, uh I need to do this, and I need to do that, and I need to make sure I don't do this. And then, oh, I need to put my trust and faith in God. And then I need to make sure, though, i gotta, I got to make sure I, I tim this and make sure these things are all checked and done. And I gotta put, We go in and out of this thing. But when you think about this elevator, once you get in the elevator, you need to stay in the elevator. You hear me? Once you get in the elevator, you need to get, get in the elevator, stay in the elevator, and trust it. They bring you all the way to the top. And this is what Paul's talking about here. For us to be a follower of Jesus, it means you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. Which then brings us to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now Paul uses two verbs in this sentence, in this verse here that are really distinctive from culture. And the first verbs that he uses is have sinned. And those verbs are actually, in his culture, in the Greek culture, were archery terms. And what he's painting here is that when you're shooting an arrow, if this is the bullseye right here, that when you shoot an arrow, there are times that you are going to hit the bullseye. But there are times that you're going to miss it. And in, the, in that culture, if you missed, shot the arrow, and it didn't hit the bullseye, they would say it sinned. So an arrow is shot. If it missed the, misses the bullseye, it would be said it sinned. In other words, it missed the mark. It, it missed the bullseye. And the reality is, is that when we, whether it's archery or whether it's shooting or whatever, you can become really good and maybe you can hit the bullseye 99 out of 100 times, 
but no one is perfect. You watch the Olympics, and they were just doing the, the shooting with the skiing thing, and, and the top ones, boy, they got, they got a high percentage of them, but none of them got all 100% of them. Because it's just, it's just we are unable to be that good. And that's what he's talking about here. He's giving us this visual. And so he's saying that all of us have missed the mark. We've all missed God's standard one time or another in our life. And then the second verb that he says, he uses the, verb, the words, fall short. And so he first he uses these archery terminology. Then he uses the, the words that are related to racing. And those, those words literally mean to fall behind in a race. And so he's giving this visual here that we're on this race to get to God. But for us to get to God, we have to be good enough. We have to be good enough to get to God. In other words, you have to be perfect for us to actually get to God. And nobody's perfect, which is the reason why all of us then fall short in this race. Now, the reality is is that some of us are going to get further along in this race because we are better. You have more, your morality is better. And so Tasha is going to get much further down this race than I am because morally she's just much more moral than I am. You see what I'm saying? But at the end of the day, all of us fall short because none of us are perfect. And that's what he's describing here in this verse, which goes to verse 24 which says this, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, this is where we get to the meat of this chapter. And this verse is one of the most significant verses in all of your Bible. And so even if you don't underline or highlight your Bible, would you just do that? Underline, highlight, circle, asterisk, put all sorts of things right here on this verse. Because this verse is one of the most significant verses in the entire Bible. I'll kind of deconstruct it for you because there are three key words here that describe for us what God has done for us. And the first key word is freely. Everybody say freely. freely. And that word freely means without a cause. In other words, you didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. It's unmerited. There's nothing in of yourself that deserves what it is that God has done for you. Then the second key word is redemption. Everybody say redemption. redemption. That word redemption means to release by paying a ransom. And in Paul's day, that word redemption was used in very two, very two distinctive ways. The first was used in reference to the slave market and in the process of slaves. Because in Paul's day in Rome, there were one-half million slaves in Rome. One-half million. Half of the population of Rome consisted of slaves. And so if you had money and if you weren't a slave, you could go to the slave market and you could pay for a slave. And once you have that slave... Because slaves had absolutely no rights in the Roman Empire, you could force that slave to do whatever. You could make them work a certain thing. You could, um, you could actually kill them, and it would be completely fine because slaves had no rights in the, in the Roman Empire. And so if you went to a slave market and you bought a slave, you would have to pay a redemption. That's the word. You'd have to pay a redemption, which was a price 
that you would have to pay to, in order to release that slave. And then once you had that slave released, you could do whatever you wanted to with that slave because you paid that redemption price. That's the first way that word redemption is used um, in Paul's day. The second way that word redemption was used in Paul's day was in reference to hostages and kidnapping. Because if someone was kidnapped or held hostage, you could pay a redemption, which was an agreed amount price, in order to release that person back to you. And so do you see what Paul's doing here? He's describing here what God has done for us. And he uses this picture in the, in the Roman culture, and these Romans would have known exactly what he was talking about. That this redemption was used. That this is what Jesus did for us. He paid the redemption for you and for me so that we can be free. So again, I want you to think about this courtroom scene. I want you to think about what Paul has been doing. And, you know, for um, this afternoon's purposes, if you can all just kind of picture in your mind's eye, you're in the courtroom. So here God is up here at the judgment seat. And you've been watching Paul give all this evidence against you. But it's not in a generic way. He goes through all of humanity. And so he begins to pull everybody up, and he brings Gary's life forward, and he shows how Gary, well, all of Gary's godlessness, all of Gary's wickedness, and all of Gary's self-righteousness, and it's all laid before the courtroom. But he doesn't just pick on Gary. He picks on Marilyn, and he picks on, he picks on every single one of us uh, to show the evidence that, that where we've lied, where we've cheated, where lust has been in our hearts, where we've lashed out in anger, or unforgiveness, where we let jealousy build. He begins to show this. And so we're all sitting in the court and we're watching this happen. The evidence is building up and the evidence is building up. And every single one of us are then, the evidence is very clear. There's, it's overwhelming the evidence Paul is bringing. It's, it's cut and dry. There's absolutely no defense. And so God, as judge, he picks up the gavel and he declares guilty, guilty on all accounts of godlessness, guilty on all accounts of wickedness, guilty on all accounts of self-righteousness. So again, picture yourself in that courtroom. You hear the guilty sentence over your life. You are guilty. And now you're in the hands of the judge. The guilty verdict has already been declared. Now what about the sentence? What does that mean that you're guilty? What do I have to do because I am guilty? And then God declares the sentence of that guilty verdict is death. Death is what you have to pay for your guilty verdict. And if you imagine in the audience the realization of that guilty verdict and then the death penalty that you're going to have to pay. And so you hear the yells and the screaming and the crying of people. How can this be? Can you imagine? Now just picture yourself in a courtroom and you're on trial and you've been found guilty. But you're not just getting put in jail. This is your execution. You're going to be put to death because of what you have done. And so the crying and the, the yelling and the weeping that's going on in the courtroom, and if we would probably look in the courtroom, if you look way in the back, you see, all, you see Satan and all of his legion of demons back there just cackling and laughing and saying, we did it. We tempted every single man, every single woman, and they're all guilty. They all fell. Our mission was successful. We were able to kill, t steal, and destroy. And in that moment, right before humanity is then escorted out of the courtroom, Jesus does something. 
and he stands up in the courtroom and he asks for permission to approach the judge. And so Jesus stands and he said, may it please the, the court, your honor, but may I say something? And God, the judge, quiet in the court. You know how judges do that when it raise? Quiet in the court, quiet in the court. And silence goes over the courtroom and Jesus approaches the bench and says, your honor, it's true. Mankind is guilty, guilty of godlessness, guilty of wickedness, guilty of self-righteousness. The evidence has been clear. Every single one of mankind is guilty. And I understand that the sentence of death is right because in order for that guilt to be dealt with, death is required. But your honor, I have a proposal for you. Would you consider taking my life in exchange for theirs? Every man, every woman is guilty of that. But I am without sin. I am righteous, Jesus says. Would you consider my life for theirs? I will pay that redemption price so that they do not have it. And God goes, done. And immediately, Jesus is escorted out of the courtroom. And he's executed and put to death for you and for me. This is redemption. This is what Paul is talking about here, which then brings us to the third key word, which is justified. Everybody say justified. justified. Now, this is an amazing word in the original language here because this, this the word justified is a legal term that was only used in a courtroom case. And that word literally means to declare not guilty, to be acquitted, to make right. In other words, justification is the legal act of God declaring guilty people to be guiltless. Think about it. Think of what God is doing here in that moment. Because here's the incredible thing about justification. Justification is not just forgiveness. Justification means that there's absolutely no longer any case at all against you. The case that was brought to you before the court, the evidence that was so clear that you were guilty, that's been completely wiped away. You have a clean slate. All the charges that have been brought against you have now been dropped. So again, imagine yourself, you're in, the, you're in the courtroom, and you're watching this unfold, and you're seeing all this happen, your evidence, and you hear the gavel come down, guilty, and then the sentence of death, and, and it's all kind of cloudy here, and you know, you're overwhelmed with grief, and the, you know, your fear of your own life, and all of a sudden you see commotion, and Jesus stands up, and he says something, and he does something, you don't even remember what it is, it's kind of a blur for you, but then all of a sudden, God the judge looks at you, and he says, you're acquitted, Ray. You're acquitted. You're acquitted, Chrissy. You're acquitted, Lachelle. God looks at you and says, you're acquitted. All the charges that have been brought against you are null and void. They've been dropped. And so right there, the gavel comes down once more. Not guilty, God declares. And we're now escorted out of the courtroom into a whole new life of freedom. This, that's what the word justification means, which then brings us to verse 25, which says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, 
He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. A lot, a lot of words in that in those verses right here, but here's the simplicity of it. Because the next thing that we see in terms of what God did for us, what Paul's describing here, is how much our salvation costs God. You didn't do anything, you didn't deserve it, but boy did it cost God, because the ransom paid for your freedom, the ransom paid for your acquittal, the ransom paid in order to get you to a point of being not guilty was Jesus Christ giving his own life. And if you know the Easter story, you know the incredible, the incredible price that Jesus paid, the torment, the agony that he went through to pay the ransom price for your freedom. And in giving his life for you, not only did he take care of your past sins, not only did he take care of your present sins, but he took care of your future sins as well. And so the Apostle Paul then gives this conclusion at the end of this chapter. He says this in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and uncircumcised through that same faith. In other words, there's absolutely nothing that you and I can do to be able to claim that what God did for us was something about what we are good enough, that somehow I helped this happen. No. But Paul's saying you can't boast about any of this. You can't be proud about any of this because this salvation thing, this redemption thing, this legal term of of being justified had nothing to do about you. This was all about God's love for you and Jesus giving his life for you. That's what he's describing here. That's how much God loves you. Freely. Redemption. Justification. Three very powerful words that transforms what you and I are now able to do, and how now you can be in right relationship with God. You can know him for yourself. You can hear his voice. You can walk with him, and that now becomes the joy and the adventure that we have that's laid in front of us. I want you to just close your eyes, if you would, please, because I want you to just kind of just stay in that moment of of being in that courthouse, if you would. And because maybe for you, maybe there's something about what we just described as we looked at this and we talked about this here today. That maybe for the first time, what, what Jesus did, it's finally making sense for you. Maybe you've had a lot of ideas and you've had a lot of information, but maybe something's really connecting with you here today. Maybe for you, you've been trying to do the good thing. You've been trying to be religious. You've been trying maybe to do this church thing, but... Maybe today you begin to realize that that's not what it's about. That's not good enough. And that the only way that you can be in right standing with God, the only way for you to get to heaven is for you to put your faith, put your trust solely in Jesus alone and allow Jesus then to pay that redemption price for 
for your freedom because you have a choice in all of this. Because even though Jesus has taken that step, even though God accepted that redemption price, you and I, we still have to say, I want in on that. Because one way or another, somebody's going to have to pay for your guilty verdict. And once you step into eternity, that price has to be paid. And so you can go ahead in spite of what Jesus done, and you can go ahead and not enter into that, and you'll have to pay that price. And the sentence still exists, which is death, eternal death. Or you can let Jesus be the one who takes that place and pays that redemption price to set you free. And then let God justify you where there's absolutely no longer any case against you, where your slate has been wiped out, where you're now in perfect standing with God, where all the charges against you, no matter how big or little, have been completely dropped. If you would, I want you to just pray this out loud with me. I'm just going to lead you, and if you would, just pray this out loud after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for those words. But now, in spite of all the facts that I'm guilty, that I'm guilty in all accounts of wickedness, that I'm guilty on all accounts of godlessness, that I'm guilty on all accounts of self-righteousness, that that's not the end of my story. Thank you so much for initiating a rescue plan for making a way through Jesus Christ to justify me, for declaring me guiltless, innocent, just as if I had never sinned. Thank you and thank you, Jesus, for redeeming me. Thank you for paying the price to release me from the grip of the devil. Thank you for ransoming me, for paying the price with your death. And so now I recognize that my life is not my own. You paid for my life. And so now, I'm yours, and I willingly give you my life. I put my faith, and I put my trust in you, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand to your feet here, the team's going to lead us back into worship, and as they do this, I, I want you to just put your hands out in front of you as they begin to lead lead in this and begin just in, through this song and through your own words to begin just to thank God for what he's done for you to remember the price that was paid for you to be free. Come on, let's, let's worship here together. In, in Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, it, it says this, it says, for you are called to be free, my brothers and sisters. And, you know, I think in light of what we talked about here this afternoon, that should have a whole new meaning for you. That when you were in court and evidence was overwhelming of your guilt, 
And Jesus stepped in and paid the redemption for you to be free. God declares you as free. And I just, uh, I just, I, I love that. And that's, you know, here's, here's, let me just say this real quick. Um, let me just say, this is how God sees you. So God doesn't see you with a list of all the things you've ever done wrong. And he's not holding that against you. What this means is that it's been completely wiped clean. It's not there. We and the devil tend to remember what we've done, but God doesn't. He doesn't even, when he looks at you, doesn't even see it. He doesn't see all of that junk in your past because you have been redeemed. You have been justified. So he says, for you've been called then to live, to be free. But don't use your freedom then to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. And I think that's exactly how we move. That once you come out of this courtroom and you're escorted out in that, that not guilty verdict, what, was, what you were guilty with now becomes not guilty, then from that point of freedom, instead of just living your life unto yourself, now we live our life differently. We live our life to share that love, how much God loves us. And I shared this in the first service that one of my favorite pieces of literature outside of the Bible is Les Miserables. And there's a great, if you've never read or watched the movies or whatever, there's a great scene in this where Jean Valjean, who was put in prison and jail as a little kid for stealing just food, and he escapes and he's on the run and this bishop takes him in. And he's a, a grown man at this point. And the bishop takes him in and, and feeds him and just shows God's love to him. But he sees all of the silver and all of the stuff that he can take. And he does. In the middle of the night, he gets up and he steals the silver in the house. And he runs out. But the police catch him. And they bring him back. And they realize where it's come from. It's come from the bishop's house. They bring Jean, Jean back to the bishop's house and said, this man stole all your stuff. And the bishop goes, No. I gave this to Jean Valjean. Oh, by the way, Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. Let me put these candlesticks in your bag as well. And Jean Valjean is just, he can't believe what he's seeing because he knows he's guilty. And when the police leave, the, the bishop looks at him and says, with these candlesticks, I have redeemed your life. Now go and make the most of it. Give. And share that with others. And that's exactly what the rest of the story is. How he lives his life, not just for himself anymore, but from that point of redemption, he begins to live his life loving others, blessing others. And that is our mandate as well. Let me just share this story real quick too. So last night we were flying back from California and Beth and I were sitting together in a row. There's three seats. And... and uh, as we were getting ready to take off, I, I met the lady right beside us, didn't know her name, didn't know much anything, and you need to know for me personally, I tend to be one of those that when I get into an airplane, I find my little space, and I don't want anybody else to touch me, I don't want to talk to anybody else, I just kind of want my space, and I want to work or sleep or do something like that, and I had kind of pre-planned that I was, there's things that I needed to get done, because this week was busy, and we had church here this morning, and so I planned on working, but as I was talking with Beth, I was asking her just about the conference you know, what she got out of it. And we were just having a conversation by that. And by this time, the plane was moving down the runway and it was, it was going up. And as I'm talking here, I start hearing this noise beside me coming from this lady. And I turn um, um, to look at her and she is crying. And I, I look at her and say, are, are you okay? 
and she can't talk. I mean, she's just, I mean, her face is red, everything's clenched. And I said, are you in pain? And she said, yes. I said, so can, can, I, can I pray for you? And so I just laid my hands on her, on her legs and just started praying for her because she was in this excruciating pain. And as we went on through the plane ride, I, I learned more about her. Her name's Lisa. And, and uh, several years ago, she had um, a, a problem, an accident on her with her back. And so she had gone in to do some sort of surgery thing. In the process of the surgery, they messed something up. And she got this, um, I can't remember, somebody else will probably know the name better than I, this, this reflexive syndrome dystrophy, this long thing that basically creates all of this pain in her body. She's constantly in pain. And so when the altitude changes, she's in this excruciating pain. Turbulence causes excruciating pain. And so that, that's what was going on, on with her. And as I was talking with her, the Lord reminded me of something. I, I know a lady... Um, when I lived up in Wisconsin, she lived in Minnesota, and her son came to our church, and she had this very same, um, um, well, it's not a disease, it's a dy this dystrophy. Um, and, uh, but here's the amazing thing, God healed her. And uh, CBN actually did a little video on her testimony. I turned to Beth, I said, I, 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 I it, can we get internet <laughs> on an airplane? Because there's a video I would love to be able to show her. Beth goes, yeah, we well, just have to pay for it. And so she, goes, so she does it, and I look for it. And sure enough, we were able to find it. And so I tell, I said, um, I, said there, I have a friend who had exactly what you had, and God healed her. And I told her the story first. I said, you know, she had had this, I don't know, for 20-some years or something like that. She was in, it was just getting worse and worse. She was just became so tightened up with the pain of this. But this one day, Jesus walked into her room and healed her of it. And she was able to stand up and walk for the first time. And she walked into the family room. And her adult kids were just amazed and shocked and couldn't believe what they were seeing before their eyes. And so I said, so I told her that story. I said, there was a video that was made of this. Would you mind watching this? And so she watches this whole thing with her, my earphones in. And, and she's just crying as she's watching this. And uh, as, as when she got off of that, I could just tell faith was right. Was, was rising inside of her heart. Hope to believe that this wasn't the end, that this wasn't her fate, that God still could do something in the midst of her, of what's going on, that she didn't have to deal with this for the rest of her life. And as we were coming back in, she said, she said, so this is where it's going to get hard for me again, because I'm coming, we're coming back down, altitude is changing, this is where all this excruciating pain happened. And, and the first jar created this jarring pain. But here's the interesting thing. It stopped, and when we finally landed, she looks at us and said, I, so I don't know what really happened, but that wasn't nearly as bad as what I thought it was going to be. She said, I don't know if the turbulence and all the thing wasn't so bad this time, or that you just have something, so mad, or you just have mad skills, um, because that was not bad at all. And let me just tell you something, that's, that's God working in her life. And I want to just, I want to put that as a deposit in you that you're around hurting people all the time. And so that's what Paul's saying. Now that you're free, when you walk out of this courtroom, use your freedom now to love on others. Use your freedom now to bless others, to speak life into others, because as you've received it, now you can be that blessing to somebody else. So pay attention. Don't just use it for yourself. Give it away to others. Bless others. Love others greatly. Does that make sense, everybody?
Come, why don't you grab a hold of the person's hand beside you? Let's love each other. Go across the aisles here. Let's make up the distance between left and right. And, and as I pray, you just begin to pray for the people on your left and right, for the people in front of you, behind you. Lord, we do. We pray for those around us. We thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you for what you're doing, what you're starting, what you're igniting in us. And Lord, I thank you specifically for those. It's like they, they've woken up today and they've been able to see the gospel clearly. And Lord, we pray that that would ignite in them just this desire to move forward in the adventure of following you, that this isn't a religion, it's not a church, but this is life with you. And so, Father, we thank you for the people on our left and right in front of us, behind us. We thank you for the appointment of today and meeting with you today. And Lord, we want to speak blessing over them, that as they go to their homes and their families and their workplaces and their schools into the market, that God, that your light would be on them and they would love well, that they would share your light to those around them, that they would share your good news with those who are around them. And so, Father, thank you for stirring. Thank you for moving in our, and thank you most um, of all for Jesus and the freedom that you've given us. Where we were guilty, you've now set us free. And so, Father, I pray, Father, for your spirit to be unleashed on everyone here, here today. God, your spirit of counsel, your spirit of knowledge, your spirit of wisdom, your spirit of understanding to be released into every man and woman and young person in this room. God, your spirit of might and your spirit of power and the spirit of the fear of the Lord that would constrain us to work in our lives this week so that we can be your ambassadors, that we can be your arms outstretched, that we can be your hands and feet to a really hurting world. That, God, we would go from here with your love and, God, with your perspective and with being filled by your spirit here today. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Well, God bless you, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.